Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I am thrilled to have Liz Kleinrock on the program. Liz is an elementary teacher, social justice advocate, anti-bias educator, curriculum writer, PD work facilitator, and presenter. Liz just had an amazing TED Talk release on TED.com called How to Teach Kids to Talk About Taboo Topics. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And Liz, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development. I would love to hear your personal educational journey and how you went from the classroom to a TED Talk presenter. Sure. I actually never thought I was going to be a teacher. Um, It's something that I kind of fell into. Um, When I was in college, I started volunteering in an after-school tutoring program and really, really enjoyed it. And my college roommate also led this organization that went into local elementary schools and did art projects with kids after school. And so I just kind of tagged along for about a year and ended up really falling in love with it. So I tacked on an education minor my senior year, kind of last minute, and then ended up moving out to Oakland and taught through AmeriCorps for two years. Just kind of thought I would try it on and see if it fits. And I've been doing it ever since. So moved to LA, got my master's at UCLA in education. And for the past, wow, at the end of this year, it'll be, I got eight years, um, at a charter school in East Hollywood. So I've been there as a founding teacher, have taught first through fourth grades there. And this year recently moved from a full-time classroom role to a part-time classroom role where I'm in the classroom three days a week. And I'm also my school's diversity coordinator for the other two days. So I'm splitting my time now, which has been quite a privilege. And I've really enjoyed working more with teachers and grade level teams to figure out how to support them in developing equity work at different age levels. As for the TED Talk piece, I was nominated for Teaching Tolerances Award for Excellence in Teaching last year by a friend, Karen Schreiner, who's amazing, who won the award in 2016 um, and was really lucky to be part of the Teaching Tolerance community. Got to go to Alabama and have done some writing and work with that organization, and they're just phenomenal people. And then this year, have really just tried to kind of step up my social media game a bit. I you know, was a personal social media user, but decided last year that I needed to separate a lot of the work that I was doing and put it in a particular place, kind of like as an online portfolio almost. And then when the Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court occurred in the fall, I noticed a lot of the conversations that were happening, you know, sometimes with kids who were aware of them at school and then with just adults and reading newspaper headlines and seeing this big disconnect between how people were just able to sit and have a conversation um, about some of the issues that were being brought up. And I think like whenever I look at those things happening in the world, the headlines, I like to think about backtracking and what can we do proactively to prevent these things from happening again because we can't change the past. So I came up with a lesson about consent and I think a lot of people you know associate consent with sex but my kids are eight and nine years old so that's not the conversation that we're having um, it's really just about how to set personal boundaries and develop that language and also just practicing how how to recognize that people have different types of boundaries that make them feel comfortable in certain situations with different people and these are things that people need to respect and I think that 
they go beyond looking at people's age or race or background. These are just things that everybody has the right to express and that you know everybody has the right to feel respected, especially in places of learning. So from that lesson that kind of became like this mini media circus back in the fall, it was noticed by one of the curators at TED and they reached out and I was invited to speak as part of their education salon in late January of this year. And yeah, it's been kind of a whirlwind. Oh, most definitely. And if anyone follows you on social media, they know that you advocate for social justice, anti-bias education and equity in schools. So for educational leaders that don't know these concepts, can you explain the difference between equity and equality? Yeah, when we think about the term equality, I like to think of it kind of like in a mathematical sense. Equality is when everybody gets the same thing regardless. Um, But equity is about giving people what they need. Like for certain students, you might receive certain services in schools because they have special needs. That's not something that every student gets, but that's something that certain kids need in order to access content or participate in class. And so what is some of the largest trials you've had in your work on equity? Well, I think because equity is about giving people what they need, everybody's coming in with a different lens and a different perspective. Oftentimes people think, well, that person's getting a lot more than me without recognizing you know, the full picture of what's going on with that person or a certain group of people. And I think it's often really hard for folks to decenter themselves from these topics and these conversations. A big challenge is when folks look at other people getting something different or something more, they automatically assume it's at a loss to them. And I don't think that's always the case. And that kind of goes with another topic that you talk about, which is tackling privilege. What are some things that educational leaders can do to really look at some of the constructs of our civilization with privilege and how it seeps into our educational system? I think the conversations around privilege are so closely tied to conversations around cultural dominance that often privilege is something that you are not even aware that you have because you are so used to it, you're so accustomed to it. But there's this big piece about destigmatizing this topic because it is such a trigger word. You know, you just say privilege and people kind of react to it in different ways. Um, and I think it's often helpful to start exploring privilege from a lens other than race. Um, if people are feeling very hesitant or defensive about it, um, starting with ways to examine privilege that you might not think about every single day, even things down to, I'm aware because of my size and because of my appearance, I can go into you know your typical department store and always find something that's going to fit me. You know, meanwhile, I pointed out to a friend once that I would get these makeup samples from Sephora and. They never match to my skin tone, but my friend is white. So any of those free samples, things like that, she could always find that work for her. And for me, I would just have to throw them out um, because I'm a person of color. Um, So, you know, kind of those little things like that that you don't always examine. And I think working up to race is something where once you build this language and capacity to talk about ways that you might have certain advantages over other people and that those advantages can be things that are, you know, you're born with or that you are given over time. They're not always things that you have to associate automatically with shame and guilt, but recognize that if you have them, it's important to acknowledge them and recognize how you can spend them in ways to help and advocate for other people. So kind of looking at it from a lens of empowerment rather than shame. A couple of days ago, I saw a post on your Instagram story about racism, not just being someone using a derogatory term for a group of people. How do we as educators explore how racism is occurring on our own campuses? Oh my goodness. 
there are like volumes of books that have been written about this. How can I? I think that examining language and examining visibility are good places to start. Like if you look at your classroom library, you know, the books that you choose, it's great to have a diverse classroom library, but thinking about whose stories are being told, which authors am I choosing to include, whose perspectives are being shared. If I'm using words like, you know, typical or normal, I think those are things that like language that educators often use and don't really examine what that means if students don't fall into those categories that they're describing. If it means behavioral, if it means neurotypical, you know, certain social or like cultural norms, thinking about even like suspension rates or disciplinary rates. If you are asking teachers about students who pose behavior problems in class, are they mainly identifying like black and brown students, their kids of color? If you look at family engagement across campuses, are you getting predominantly more affluent, outspoken white families? If families have um, are coming from backgrounds of like non-native English speakers, are they given the same opportunities to participate and be heard on campus in the same way as you know other families? Those are just some ways you could begin to examine how race does play out. Yeah, and I want to touch on what you talked about with discipline and percentages of maybe the students of race. I know social justice is one of the things that you talk about. How can our campuses look at the numbers? Because I know campuses may have 20% of a minority group but that might result in 80% of the discipline records. What is something an educational leader can do to look at the data and then make changes appropriate to social justice? I think if you're looking at school data and you're seeing disproportionately that your black and brown students are not doing as well academically as their white counterparts, then it is absolutely the responsibility of the school there. No, it's not just one or two kids who are outliers. You're looking at an entire racial subgroup. So clearly there are things going on within your school culture that is not setting certain students up for success. Um, I would think about really starting with your teacher's education. And I know that's something that a lot of professional development calendars don't really a lot for. You know, we're trying so hard to adapt to new standards and curriculum and things like that. But there is this really big piece of identity work that I think all educators need to do, especially if you are educating students of color. Have your teachers spent time sitting with their own identities and unpacking their own biases and cultivating some awareness of how those biases might be playing out in class? You know, if your student who is black is behaving in a certain way, do you use different language to describe them than a student who's white, who's displaying the exact same behaviors? You know, it often plays out in gender dynamics as well. But I think if teachers aren't able to actually sit or read or have those conversations, it's something that continuously gets pushed to the back burner because when conversations are difficult and uncomfortable, I think we tend to revert back to what is you know, easy and familiar. And this work definitely doesn't fall into that category. So I would definitely encourage administrators to carve time out for teachers to really specifically explore that piece before even engaging with students. And what are your recommendations for educators who receive pushback, possibly from the district, parents, or other educators on implementing equitable practices on their campus? Well, I get a lot of those questions, and it's really, really challenging. You know, I've been very fortunate to work at a school where this work is a priority, and it's never been something that I have to be afraid of. I would first try to have a conversation 
if it's an uh, administrator or a parent, and just kind of sit down and understand their why. I think when you can recognize where somebody is coming from, that's often the first step to you know determining a solution. And I've asked parents, even in my community, what concerns would you have about me teaching your students about things like race or gender or other teachers? And a lot of those parent concerns are things that I can completely empathize with. You know, I've had parents of color say, you know, I'm just really nervous that my kid is going to be tokenized because, you know, they're a kid of color in a predominantly white class, for example. Or if it's a white parent, they might say, I'm just really worried that my kid is going to feel this guilt and shame because of their race and I don't want them to experience that. Or I've had a parents also say, like, what I was just speaking about, I'm afraid like this teacher hasn't, you know, had enough time to really unpack their own biases. So why would I trust them having those conversations with my kids if they're just going to be up there, you know, preaching from the pulpit, like indoctrinating my students? I think those are all really valid concerns. I think also for administrators, often teachers don't know, you know, the types of stresses and pressures that admin might be under if it's about test scores, for example, I like to show how all of this type of equity work can be incorporated into any subject through Common Core or other standards. It's really about choosing topics that reflect culturally responsive issues and people and things like that. But it's not like this subsection of the day where you're having to take away time from your other units of study. You know, it's something that you can interweave. But back to the point, I think having the conversation first to understand where the concerns are coming from has to be the first start. So it seems like you've had a lot of support on your campus. For our current educational leaders listening, how can they support similar initiatives or support a teacher similar to yourself? I think if you're uh, trying to support a teacher, writing letters or notes of encouragement and support to administration or to the district and saying, hey, I've noticed that this teacher is doing something really important and really valuable. I hope this is something that you are promoting and valuing. You know, I think those really small tokens of support can really go a long way because if they start to add up, you know, you create this pattern of like, wow, I've been hearing a lot of really great things about this teacher, about this school. We should probably go check out what's happening because the family satisfaction rate seems really, really high. And that kind of leads me to my, my next question. For those who haven't had the opportunity to view your TED Talk, can you just give us a quick synopsis for our leaders? Sure. So my TED Talk was about this idea of destigmatizing taboo topics with young learners. I think when adults in general, pretty much anyone who works with kids or has kids, thinks about issues like race or gender, religion, they often seem really abstract and really big and really scary. And we often put this assumption on kids, which is really not fair, that they're so young, they don't understand, they can't understand, it's beyond them, when I think that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, like kids are exposed to everything adults are, but are just given less context and information. And I think that's really dangerous. And that's where a lot of misinformation and biases stem from. You know, if you ever come into my class and you just ask them, you know, what do you know about what's going on in the news these days? Like every single kid in my class can tell you something. And then when you make space for them to ask questions and voice their opinions, they get so excited because they're really given that space to have those conversations and be included and you know, take part in a community where their voices and opinions really matter, where people take them seriously. And I find that it's a great way to engage students who are usually not very engaged in school. 
you know, they really appreciate the respect that teachers give to talk about, you know, real life issues and current events and things like that to feel heard. For those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? Really lead by example. You know, if you're an administrator and this is the type of work that you want to promote at your school, how are you making space for it? Like, are you carving out time in your PD calendar? Are you telling your teachers, you know, this is like a really great book about equity in schools. I highly recommend it. Do they get from you a sense of safety and security in pursuing this work? Do they know that you're going to have their back? Oftentimes getting started is the most difficult part. You know, I find that with a lot of educators, if in leadership or if you're a classroom teacher, there's a lot of buy-in just about the philosophy, like equity and social justice work is important. We get that. But then how do you actually get started? Taking that first step can be really, really challenging. Just being really kind to yourself. Also, I think these days we're in this dangerous habit of, you know, demanding perfection from ourselves and from each other. But recognizing that this work is very much a continuum. It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a finish line. Um, It's always evolving. Like I even recognize that in five years I could look at my TED Talk and be like, wow, Half of what I said was really problematic. I completely disagree with, you know, a lot of the things I said because I'm still learning. And I think going in with that lens and being very forgiving with yourself and just recognizing that even if you are a quote unquote expert in this, everybody still has a lot to learn. And have you received criticism on your message? And if so, how did you work through that? Oh my gosh, so much. I mean, not so much. I would say um, like the consent piece, the TED talk, it's been like 90% positive, 10% critical. Like never mind constructive criticism. Like that's never an issue. If somebody comes in saying, you know, I had some questions about this or like I don't really understand this piece, um, I'm more than happy to have a conversation. You'll always get your typical trolls. You know, you're a communist, socialist, leftist teacher who's indoctrinating kids, things like that. I find honestly, like if people don't know me or my work and I don't know, there's only so much energy I can expend on certain things throughout my day. And that's not one I really choose to focus on very much. I also think it's really easy to look at, you know, one Instagram post or one TED talk and assume that, you know, everything about me in my practice when you know that really couldn't be further from the truth mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I think like that's definitely a challenge I felt is not so much even from people who are like quote unquote trolls, but educators who look at one specific thing that I've done and made a huge assumption that I must be X because of Y. And I think that can be challenging. Why did you choose to take your message to social media and what led to you finding your voice beyond your campus? I really just saw a need. Um, I feel like I had a personal need of wanting to connect with like-minded educators who are doing this work in different capacities. I wanted to know that if it works within my community and my classroom, it needs to be able to work in other places too, or else it's kind of meaningless if it can only work in like one particular type of setting. So I guess I set out trying to find a community of people and that's exactly what I found. It's been wonderful. Um, I've made some really great friends just through social media and yeah I kind of hate social media sometimes but it's (laughs) brought me like a lot of love and a lot of really great things too in closing what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership I think when you have the ability to set the tone of a culture of a place I think that's so exciting being a founding teacher at my school I've been here since year one and 
even though I was a classroom teacher, I was not an administrator. Just being able to have a say about what kind of a place you're helping to create is amazing. Like I know I might never ever get that opportunity again. You know, you get to choose what type of values are elevated and appreciated and you know what priorities your community has and it's it's awesome and how can our listeners connect with you on social media i am most active on instagram my handle is at teach and transform all one word i have the same handle on twitter but i am not as active on twitter and also on facebook as well same handle Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on Twitter. Liz, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much.